A hundred years ago, the new Irish Free State was forging a path of independence from Britain. During the War of Independence itself, new institutions were set up to replace those of the Empire. Institutions like the Dáil Courts, for example. But nonetheless, the legal and economic complexity of dissolving a union, knotty questions of currency, borders and resources, were not entirely resolved by the Anglo-Irish Treaty. They're the sort of questions that we see playing out in a modern context as well, in the context, for example, of the Scottish independence referendum campaign of 2014, or, of course, in the years since the Brexit vote. Dr Paul Huddy is executive member of the Irish Association of Professional Historians and the coordinator of the Military Welfare History Network. He's been looking into two court battles that took place in the 1920s, fought by the Irish, British and Northern Ireland governments over the legacies of two Irish military charities. Paul, you're very welcome back to the History Show. Tell us first about these the two charities themselves. There's something called, and I must admit completely unfamiliar with them, the Seton Association Fund and the Royal Hibernian Military School. Yes, the Seton Association Fund was a benevolent fund. It was, it was set up by another charity called the Seton Needlework Association, which was actually a Crimean War charity, hence my interest in it, which was set up to give employment to Crimean War veterans in Dublin or the wives of Crimean War veterans and the widows in the garrison. Uh, And then over the 50 years after, or the 20 years after the war, they made enough money then to start this fund. So that was set up in 1872 and was to give extra money to Crimean War widows and British Army wives within the Dublin garrison. The second charity, as it were, the Royal Hibernian Military School was a set up in 1765, originally as a Protestant charity for, again, orphans and sons of Irish soldiers. And it was set up and it would train those boys. It was very much a military academy. The boys would be boy soldiers, for want of a better word, trained, wear, wear a uniform, and at the end would be expected to join the army. Now, it was... Set up as a charity over time, effectively became a state institution. The War Office came under its auspices in the 19th century and then got an endowment from Westminster. But it also got bequests, wills would be made out giving money to this particular organisation. So it ended up accruing a certain amount of money as well. I can imagine that they would not have been particularly fashionable in the Ireland of the 1920s anymore, that their time would have passed. The Irish Free State's position, therefore, on how the resources should be allocated, I'm assuming would have involved, we want the money, we don't want the institutions anymore. Is that, would I be correct? You're half right. So the institutions themselves effectively had ceased to exist. Both organisations were heavily embedded in the British Army. And with the absence of the British Army, they didn't exist anymore. So literally, the Royal Hibernian Military School packed up and jumped on a boat in 1922, the same, or at the end of 1921, the same as the British Army. Boys were gone, the staff was gone, the records were gone. What you had was a building in Phoenix Park, which later got you know taken over by the National Army and used as a garrison. The Seton Association Fund, its top trustees were actually the top military brass in the Royal Hospital Kilmainham, the general commanding the forces in Ireland, the adjutant general, the quartermaster general. These were the people who ran that charity. And of course, they all jumped on a boat in 1921 as well. So the people were gone, but the money remained. And now it's a case of who gets the money. 
So it goes to court. It goes to court. Who so, are the parties involved in the case? Well, then? we have five belligerent parties. We have the Irish government, as you mentioned, the Northern Irish Executive Government, the British government. There is then also another charity, the Royal Drummond Institute, which was effectively the sister school of the Royal Hibernian. It was, it was a school for British soldiers' daughters, Irish soldiers in the British Army. If they had orphan daughters or daughters while they were abroad, they could go to this school. And the other and most important belligerent, was the Charity Commissioners, what we now call today the Charities Regulator. They were set up in 1844 as a statutory body to ensure that bequests, trusts and charities were carried out as they were originally intended. They could hold money, effectively, and then give out the dividends. And that's their interest in this. Mm. We have two charities, effectively, that they want to see continue as they were originally intended. I don't imagine that when Michael Collins and Arthur Griffith and Lloyd George were sitting down to sign the treaty that they were thinking about any of these ramifications but this is exactly what we're talking about these ramifications that go on for years or, or decades even so tell me about the uh, the conduct of the case and the outcome of the case Well it all started uh, literally a month after we see the dump arms from the irregular forces. June 23 a letter appears in Dublin in the Charity Commissioners from the British British Army Council, which is the executive that runs the British Army effectively. And they say, we know you have this seat in association fund. It's £3,500. We want it. We want to give it to another charity, the Royal Patriotic Fund in London, to administer the British forces. Now, what we see here, it all comes down to one individual, and that's the Right Honourable Justice Charles Andrew O'Connor, Master of Roles. He is on the board of the Charity Commissioners, and he says, no way. That money is not leaving Ireland. And he convinces the board of such, and thus they take it to court. So we have the Irish National Army is represented by the Attorney General. The commissioners have their barrister in there. The War Office represents the British Army Council. The Northern Irish Executive is um, invited down by the Justice Pym, the judge in charge. He says, well, they should be here as well. And then the Royal Drummond is, is mentioned within what is called the scheme of the Seaton Association. Effectively, it's the blueprint of how that charity should be managed. And they're all in the court and they're all making their claim. And they're money. all represented by barristers, presumably. Mm-hmm. OK, I mean, I can I can hear tick, 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 tick. The, the, you know, the bill is mounting for a fund that amounts to, what, about eleven or £12,000? £3,500 at the time. Just that, for that one. Just, so this is the first court case. This right. starts, we have the first four court case. The, but the two of them together two amount them to together, about 12 grand. About 11 grand, 12 yeah, grand. 12. Yeah. Plus 20 acres in Carlo. And Okay, well that might be <laughs> slightly more valuable than, the, than the, the 11 or 12 grand. I mean, I suppose to some extent this is a case study in how states dealt with First World War veterans. It is in a way. When you look at the belligerence and the broader world situation, how are great war veterans dealt with? Well, you've option A, you take the British imperial approach. Britain, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, you venerate the veteran. You give them supports from the state or charity and you make sure that their sacrifice is honoured. You go the option B, which is the opposite. Places like Czechoslovakia, Poland or Soviet Russia, where soldiers, let's say, of the Habsburg Empire or Imperial Russia are seen as enemies of the state. They are viewed with suspicion and they get nothing from the state. Option C, however, is the Irish option, where you are accommodated as an equal citizen, the same as anyone who partook in the revolution or otherwise, but you don't get a special status. So you get nothing extra for what you did or your connection with the British Army or the British state, but you won't be necessarily castigated for it by the state. What happens at a community level or in a familial level is a different situation. 
Is there a sense in which this is where the Irish state begins to learn how to deal with the ramifications of, uh, let's call it, Irexit? Uh, absolutely. You know, when you're, as you mentioned earlier on, when you're sitting around a negotiating table or you're sitting in the Shelburne Hotel you're drafting a constitution, big, picture. big pictures, you're talking about what are your national boundaries? Do you need an army? What's your currency going to be? You are not thinking about what is the implications of me severing from the union on a small charity sitting in, you know, the Bank of Ireland somewhere or run by certain people. But these are the small things. And this could be happening. I mean, these are just two case studies that I've come across. If one actually, if we take the legal historians, if they delve into the court cases in the 1920s. This could have been happening every day of the week. Okay. Spoiler alert. Who won? <laughs> Who won? Well, the charity commissioners won in both instances. And that's what's interesting about this in terms of the foundation of the Irish state. The Irish government loses. The charity commissioners and the Irish judiciary rule in favour of the charities. So the Seaton Association Fund is reconstituted because the charity commissioners knew about it. They had the scheme for it. They were aware of the last honorary secretary of that particular organisation living in Dublin. And the judge felt that the original intention for providing funds to the wives and children of British servicemen, Irish-born, could still be continued. So they reconstituted... Let's face it, there were plenty of those. Plenty of them. So he asked each of the five belligerents to nominate two new trustees. And this is more interesting in itself. It's who forms the trust thereafter. So they're effectively what we might call the old stock. So we have Thomas Francis Maloney, Lord Chief Justice of Ireland, who was actually a trustee of the Royal Drummond Institute. General Sir Brian Mahan, who you know well as the General of the 10th Irish Division, he was a trustee in another charity, the Land Trust, which built houses for ex-servicemen and in the Senate. Then Major General John Joseph Gerrard, Principal Medical Officer in Ireland, 1920 to 22, and so on. So these kinds of guys are of the old stock of sorts, if you will, pre-independence, but they are now finding their place in New Ireland in that respect. And then with regards to the Royal Hibernian School, that was a lot more complex. Seaton Fund only, the court case only lasted a year, 23, 24. <laughs> only. Only. The Royal Hibernian went on from 24 into 29. So the reason was they hadn't a clue where the money was. So this is what happens when everyone packs up and leaves Dublin. Well, where was the, where was the money left? So they had to do a bit of digging. And eventually the War Office found a document which said that the eight grand was in stocks and shares held by the Bank of Ireland on College Green. So once they figured that out, well, now you know what you're fighting for. So they were able to contest. They stood up in front of the judge and they made their claims. Between 26 and 28 is kind of when the heart of the case has been fought out. But three key points came out and it was this. The estate had to stay in Ireland and be used for Irish children. The estate could not be divided across the border between the north and the south. And it still had to be for Irish children related to the British Army. And the charities commissioners were retaining the capital and would issue the dividends to whomever the court saw fit. Okay, now you've been looking back at this as an historian, but I presume at the back of your mind, there's a warning here. There's a warning here for Scottish, the Scottish independence movement, the, the uh, growing Welsh independence movement, uh, certainly in relation to Brexit which is, be careful what you wish for, it's all ahead of you. Absolutely. We were only in a union for 120 years, and this is what people had to deal with. The Scots are in a union for over 300 years. I mean, again, look at Brexit. They're only in the EU for 45 years, and it's, and they're dealing with all sorts of 
kerfuffles because the longer you're together with someone, I mean, you know, take the basic example of a marriage. You know, you're dividing the house, you're dividing the car, you're dividing all the money that you had in the bank account. All these little intricacies, the the who knew who and who set up what and companies and so on and so forth in schools, it all has to be broken up and who gets it in the end. I'd love if somebody was able to sit down and calculate the fees made by barristers, particularly in relation to the second case, which went on for five, five or six years. Well, I'll tell you, it was the, at least the guts of a thousand pounds at the time because they used the Crimean War banquet fund, which was something that had been donated to that school after the Crimean War banquet in 1856, to pay off those fees. <laughs> Okay, it's an interesting microcosm of the challenges involved in dissolving a union. We leave it in the past and we won't speculate about what might happen in future instances. My guest is Dr. Paul Huddy. Paul, thanks very much indeed for joining us. Thank you.